Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Thanks for being with us this morning. The, the few of you that there are, y'all need to bring some friends to church next week, for real. Um, so just remember to wear your masks during service. It keeps those that are vulnerable safe um, and um, just a kind thing to do for your neighbor. So um, we're singing a song this morning. It's a new one. It's called Battle Belongs. Um, and I've just been thinking a lot about the lyrics of the chorus. It says, so when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. Um, and I think that's just such a sweet cry to, to trust God that, that the battle belongs to him. So as, as we're doing this, this prayer and, and fasting time as a church, um, Let's just remember the, the truth and, and sing the, this worship song of, of God like the battle belongs to you. Here we go. When all I see is the battle you see my victory when all I see is a mountain you see a mountain move and as I walk through the shadows your, your love surrounds me there's nothing
And how great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night Then through the darkness Your loving kindness Tore through the shadows of my soul The work is finished The end is written Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such a boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory. To wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours Sorry. 
standing for the reading of God's word. Good morning. This morning's reading is from John chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Sherry. Good morning, Redemption. Good to see all of you. Um, if you're new, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Arcadia. Um, if you're wondering about the handheld, uh, one of the things, how many of you were here when we came over from 40, 40, 42nd Street and Thomas? Okay, one of the things besides you, one of the things that we brought over from 42nd Street and Thomas were all of our packs and lavaliers and, and, head, and head mics. And um, so we're getting ready to deep six those because they don't work anymore. <laughs> but we got every last little bit out of them that we could. So uh, next week we'll probably have that all figured out, but I'm, that's why I'm using the handheld today. I'm used to handheld, so it's no big deal to me. So anyway, if you're wondering about that, um, if you're wondering about, if you're new and you're wondering about what Redemption Church is, Redemption Church is one church in Arizona with nine congregations, soon to be ten. Uh, we're going to be doing Redemption North Mountain pretty quick. Uh, I think they'll start uh, meeting in a public and official way in January of 2021. They're already meeting for leadership teams and, and all of that. Uh, the church is gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. We work through a preaching calendar together, but we do localized preaching, so we don't have somebody on a screen. Every, every congregation has their own representation of the text that we're going through, and today is uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. We only made Sherry read uh, nine of those verses because we really want her to come back someday, so... Um, Anyway, uh, be open, have your Bibles open to John chapter 4. We're going to just go straight through all of that. Uh, one other thing I want to mention is um, our Wednesday night classes and content that we're doing live. Uh, and you can come and, and be with us in person, but also it's on our uh, live stream. And then we record it and we post it to our YouTube channel as well. Um, uh, we're still doing that. Uh, we're going to finish out October this coming Wednesday night with the second part of our uh, marriage uh, during a pandemic called Pandemic Perspectives. We're going to be talking about the challenges of being married during uh, this pandemic and some of the things that um, uh, we can do. And if you haven't seen the first part of that, you can go on YouTube and watch the first part. Um, but even if you haven't seen the first part, the second part, you'll get it when you come in. We'll kind of get you up to date before we move uh, forward. And then um, that'll be it with the exception of one event on Wednesday night in November that we're, we're in the process of planning right now. We think it'll be November 11th. It'll be an, a significant and important event. And the best news is that it'll have nothing to do with the election. So we're going to have something uh, just related to the church on November 11th. And then we'll take Wednesday nights off until January when we get started back up, you know, because of all the holidays coming. And then Advent starts on November 29th. Can you believe, this is going fast, at least it is for me. So this year has been going very fast. Um, so we're in John chapter 4, let me pray, and then we'll get into this passage, this very significant passage about the Samaritan woman at the well. So Lord God, as we open your word and we look at this interaction between the King of Kings 
and a woman who is despised and marginalized in her own community and, and who is really struggling with her worldview and her religion and trying to find a framework for what Jesus is saying to her, we're reminded that we are also that woman at the well. Uh, when we first meet you, we're the woman at that well, and even after we meet you, we still struggle uh, in many ways that she does. And so we see us in this passage. And so I pray you'd make that clear to us. And I pray that as we work through this, you'd bless us with your interpretation, your insight, and your wisdom as we do that. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of you know that I've been a runner for most of my life, for almost 50 years. I love, I love running. And I do, like all distance runners, get injured at times, and that's always very difficult for me. I have to ride a stationary bike, which is absolutely the worst, but it'll keep me kinda, kind of in shape while I work through injuries and stuff. But I love running, and if I can run, I'm going to run. Even in Phoenix, Arizona, and here's the key, even in Phoenix, Arizona in July and August. And I can't stand it in July and August. I don't like running in heat. I'd much rather run in... Um, sub-freezing temperatures. I did much better in January in Chicago than I do in July and August in Phoenix, believe me. I'd just rather, rather run in cold than hot. Um, and so one of the things that I do, one of the things that I have done over the years is I've just, I get up very early in the morning, uh, even in the winter because it's kind of a pattern now, but in order to try to beat the heat in the summer, I get up very early in the morning to, to do my run. So in July and August, I'm usually out of the out of the house by about 3.30 to run so that I can get done by the time the sun comes up because the combination of the heat and the sun is just the worst. And even then, at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, the temperature in Phoenix in, Jan in July and August is, is 95 to 98 degrees. It's in the mid to upper 90s, and it is just awful. In August, you add in the humidity from the monsoons, and it's a mess. And when I get back from those runs, every single time I get back from those runs, I am, I am thirsty to an extent that I swear I have never felt before, every single time. And it's insatiable. It, there's nothing that can satisfy this thirst. It's unquenchable. And, and, I, and I take the little frozen bottle of water with me, and I sip water during the run. That doesn't seem to help. I've tried drinking water before the run. That doesn't help. The bottom line is that by the time I'm done, I am just absolutely insatiable and unquenchable in my thirst. And I will tell you that in July and August, what I wouldn't give to not be thirsty again that way, because in many ways it's just painful. But the feeling that I have for that physical thirst, it's actually worse for my soul. The thirst that I have in my soul for truth and wisdom and reconciliation and an understanding of restoration and redemption, that's even worse than that physical thirst. And I would argue that it's worse, worse for your soul as well. Whatever it is that you feel like you can't articulate in your soul that you thirst for or that you hunger for, really, it's Jesus. It's that God-shaped vacuum. There isn't any food or event or experience or relationship other than Jesus that's going to be able to fill that void and quench that thirst. Jesus is the never-thirst-again Lord, and, and that's what we're going to see in this passage today. And the passage is 42 verses, and there is a ton of excellent, instructive wordplay in the text and history behind the text. And we're going to get to as much of it as we can, but we're not going to get to all of it. But I am going to read it all. I'm going to read all 42 verses in little chunks and make some comments. But I would rather make sure we read all of God's word than, and, and, and suffer some of my... Wait, can I get an amen on that and suffer some of my words, kind of pull back on some of that? I think that would be better. So that's what we're going to do. So in your Bibles, uh, John chapter 4, the first three verses. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John, and that is a... When, when the Pharisees heard this, this is a, an indication of, of antagonism, of animus, that the Pharisees were going to go and try to get Jesus. So, um, and then John adds the, the um, little editorial remark, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. But when the Pharisees learned of this, Jesus left Judea and he departed again from, for Galilee. So 
if you remember when we talked about in chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, and when he turned the water into wine, before he did that miracle, it seemed like he and his mother were having a kind of a terse exchange, and they were. And we talked about how the reason was because um, uh, Jesus' mom, Mary, wanted him to start his ministry right then, and he was like, yeah, I know I got to start it, but really, I know that once I start it, everything's going to change. Everything's going to be different. And everywhere I go, um, I, I'm going to have to leave eventually because there's going to be opposition. There are going to be people coming after me. And, and so we see here that that's being played out. He's down in Jerusalem where he really should and could be, but he's kind of getting chased out. And he's got to go back north, back up to where the area, the same area. He's on his way to the same area where he turned the water into wine. But in order to get there, he has to go through Samaria. So this is this area between uh, Judea, Jerusalem, and Galilee where he's trying to get to. It's called Samaria. And we're going to talk about that and unpack that in a minute. The point you need to see, though, is that Jesus had to get out of there. And he had to get out of there not because he's scared. He had to get out of there because he knew if he stayed, the, the mission and, his, and purpose of his ministry uh, wouldn't be foiled, but it would be altered, and it would get in the way, it would be obstructed, and he wouldn't be able to do what he needed to do and what God was telling him to do, God the Father. And so they leave. And the next three verses we'll spend a little bit of time in because really they're the setup. It's an important setup for what happens with this Samaritan woman at the well. So four through six. And Jesus had to. That's key to get that. There's no mistake in the translation. Jesus had to. He had to pass through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. Uh, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, and near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. That's an Old Testament reference, great stories. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. We get a lot of information in these three little verses. Um, Yes, there were actually different routes to get from Judea to uh, Galilee. Uh, you could go straight, straight through Samaria, but Jews did not like to go straight through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans, and I'll explain why in a few minutes. So there were a couple of other routes. The most popular alternative route would be to go to the east, cross the Jordan River, head up north on the east side of the Jordan River, and then cross back over the Jordan River once you got to, uh, into the area of Galilee and skip Samaria altogether. Another way to get there would be to go to the west and go up the coast and then head into Galilee. That, that way was a lot longer even than the other way. Both were longer than just going through Samaria. But the Jews would avoid going through Samaria if they could because they did not have dealings with Samaritans. Um, but here's what we can't miss about Jesus' trip. The scripture said Jesus had to. He had no choice. He had to pass through Samaria. So you have to ask yourself some questions. Well, so did, did his GPS system show that there, were there was construction on the other routes and it would be difficult to get through? Or maybe there were protests, so they were protesting something. Um, maybe there was a bomb threat. No, it wasn't any of those things. In fact, what was going on was Jesus had this divine appointment of grace, truth, and love within their time, in their place, in their context, would have been the least likely, the least worthy the, the, the most unworthy, the most unlovable person to, be ever, to ever be loved and saved. He has a divine appointment with this woman. So why the rift between the Jews and the Samaritans? Well, two reasons. There were ethnic differences and there were doctrinal or religious differences. And the ethnic differences, the Samaritans couldn't do anything about it, but the Jews were blaming them. So in 922 B.C., little history lesson, in 922 B.C., the nation of Israel, God's people, they had a little spat, a little civil war. And so they split into what was known as the Northern Kingdom. And the Northern Kingdom retained the name Israel. And the Northern Kingdom is where um, first century Samaria is, where Jesus is going into. So that's the Northern Kingdom, Israel now Samaria. The Southern Kingdom got the name Judea or Judah and, and retained Jerusalem. And so they were to the south. 200 years after that, in 722 B.C., the superpower Assyrians, they were the superpower at the time, the nation of, of Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, 
came in and sacked the northern kingdom, Israel. They stopped. They didn't go into, into Judea, but they did sack Israel. And what they did with all of those Israelites, all of those Jews, was they carried some of them back to Assyria with them to intermingle with Assyrians there. But also they left tens of thousands of the uh, Israelites there in 722 in Israel, which is now Samaria, they left them there and then carted in other conquered peoples of other ethnicities in to intermarry with the Jews. And so over the course of 700 years, they had intermarried and the Jews looked at them and said they are a corrupt people now because they are not the pure Israelite people of God. And so they said the, the, the Samaritans are spoiled by this. They can't be trusted. They're not uh, people that we should be around. We shouldn't even touch the things that they touch. The Samaritans also doctrinally believed a little bit differently. They believed, for instance, that the Hebrew Bible, only the first five books of that, what's known as the Pentateuch, were legitimate scripture. So that's what we know of as Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's it. They did not believe that any of the historical books, you know, First and Second Samuels, Judges, all of those, they didn't believe any of the prophet, prophet books were, were scripture, so Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, all of those. They didn't believe any of the books of wisdom. That They only focused on the first five books of the Torah. That's the first thing. The second thing was they, they claimed Jacob is the father of their people and not Abraham, uh, although Jacob and Abraham are both... Uh, in the book of Genesis, that is a significant difference as well because there's a couple generations between those two guys. And then they also believed that a Messiah wasn't necessarily coming, but rather God was going to send a, another Moses-like prophet to help come and help the Samaritans. And so Moses was a very important person in, in their religious economy, as, is, as in, in the Jews, but especially for the Samaritans. And add into that mix... From Jesus' time back for about 200 years, um, the Jews from the south had been running military campaigns and raids into Samaria for 200 years. And about 150 years earlier, in fact, they had run in there with their military and they had destroyed the Samaritans' place of worship on top of Mount Gerizim. They had a temple up there and they destroyed it. I'll mention that again uh, later. And there were lots of casualties from their, these raids. And so the Samaritans and the Jews, they did not like each other very much. That's putting it mildly. They had a lot of misunderstanding and hate between their people. Kind of sounds a little bit like our culture today. And by the way, this spring where Jacob's well was, that spring is still there today and still active. People can identify it, which is interesting. And then the last thing there, the sixth hour. John tells us that Jesus gets to the well at the sixth hour. And this is significant because uh, that's the hottest part of the day, and there shouldn't be anybody at the well during that day. It's about noon. Because most people would go out to the well in the morning when it was cool. And they would go out in community with each other. It, it was, it was the, their version of a coffee shop where everybody gathered around while they were getting their water and talked and they were in community together. But this woman comes alone at noon because she's a complete outcast. She's promiscuous. She's a loose woman. She's a sinner. She's marginalized. She's different. She's, she's the worst of the worst. And all the other Samaritans who are hated by the Jews, hate her. And so she's not allowed to go out with the rest of the community. She's not go out, allowed to go out when it's cool and would be easier to carry the water back all the way into the city. She had to wait until it was hot in the middle of the day and go out there alone without community. And so Jesus shows up and he's there. And it says that he's wearied by, wearied by his journey. There's an interesting little shadow there, too, into the Old Testament. When Moses had committed his crime... In Egypt, early on in the story of Exodus, he had to flee from Pharaoh. And we're told in, um, in, in Exodus that at one point he was wearied by his fleeing from Pharaoh and he sat down by a well to rest. So you can see some shadows here as well with the Old Testament in the background. So verses 7 through 15, that's what Sherry uh, read for us. Let's look at those now. So a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Again, another editorial comment. I love John's editorial comments. They're very helpful. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, and by the way, a man, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? There is no way Jesus should have been talking to this person. The, the male-female dichotomy, uh, the Jew-Samaritan dichotomy, the fact that Jesus was a rabbi and she was a common person. And then John inserts yet another editorial comment, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And I'll explain that in a second. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, important term. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do, you, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? That's a challenge. And he gave, us the well, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become like in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty and I won't have to come out here to draw water anymore. She's still not getting it. Even though he, I think he made it fairly clear she could have caught on, she's still not getting it. So now, a little explanation here. I know that there are many people in this room who know all of this history and background already, but we need to review it. Uh, because it's going to be new to some. And I remember what it was like when it was new to me. I spent my first 27 years of my life not going to church at all. I didn't know anything. Some of you have heard me say that uh, when I was 27 years old, the only thing I knew about the Bible was that Jesus was my favorite cuss word and Moses was a great rebounder in the NBA. That's all I knew, I, I, literally. And so when God saves me, at North Phoenix Baptist Church, and I start going into these Bible studies, um, and I'm not throwing them, them under the bus. I'm just saying, this was my experience. One of the most frustrating things for me was I'd go into these Bible studies, and the teachers kind of assumed that everybody was already up to speed with all the history and the context and the background and the words and the language and, and the story and all of that stuff, and, and I'd just be lost. And then a about a year and a half later was when I discovered a guy named Tom Schrader teaching the Bible. And it revolutionized everything because even though Tom knew everything about the Bible that anybody could know, he knew how to teach it in a way that appealed to people who have deep, deep, deep knowledge of the Bible, but at the same time, he was able to bring new people along like me. And that was so important because I'd get so frustrated at these Bible studies and then I'd hear Tom teach and it'd be like, why can't everybody teach like that? Because I need to be able to hear that. So here's what's, what's going on. I remember what it was like not to know, and I hated it. So here's what's going on. Verse 9, John includes this little editorial comment, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Literally, if you take that ancient Greek and you translate it literally, it means I, a Jew, cannot touch anything that a Samaritan has touched or may have touched. In other words, as far as any Jewish person was concerned, the Samaritans were COVID-19 super spreaders, and they wanted to stay away from them as much as possible. That's what they thought about them. And Samaritan food was to be avoided at all costs. You weren't supposed to eat Samaritan food at all. If you were a Jew who was going to take the route that goes through Samaria, which many Jews did do, but if you did that, you would pack food before you went on the journey because you couldn't get through there without having at least a couple or three meals. But remember, the disciples and Jesus probably left Judea in haste because the Pharisees were coming, and so they didn't have time to pack any food. But apparently, some Jews, in other words, the disciples of Jesus, were willing to eat the Samaritan food if they were hungry enough. They must have been desperately hungry, so they went into town to look for food. So, let me ask you a couple questions. Isn't religion funny? I'll follow the rules until I don't. That's religion. Isn't hate funny? I, I don't like these people. I, 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 I can't be with these people, but if there's some benefit I can achieve from them, well, that's okay. I'm in for that. How about ideology? Isn't ideology funny? 
You know, here's my, my ideology. My ideology is really good for all you, but uh, not necessarily for me. You've heard that before. What's good for thee is not necessarily good for me. That's ideology. How about this? Aren't divisions and tribes and factions and camps and echo chambers and gossip, aren't they all funny? No, not really. And this is why Jesus is always trying to rise above this stuff and why Paul condemns it all in his letters in the New Testament. This is why Jesus is, is always teaching a new way, one that focuses on grace and love, one that focuses on humility and submission and not on rules and ideologies. And then verse 10, we need to consider the whole water thing. She's a Samaritan, she's a woman, and she's a sinner. Jesus is a man, he's a Jew, and he's a rabbi. He should not be talking to her. And he certainly wouldn't and shouldn't take a drink from her cup. The problem is, is that he's God, and he loves her, and he wants her to see grace and truth. So this is how he's going to do it. And this living water reference is a double entendre. No, it's not a double entendre. It's a triple entendre. It's not a triple entendre. It's a quadruple entendre. When he says living water, there are four different things that she could have taken from that. And if she was really listening closely, she would have taken the fourth one, but she didn't. But here are the four things that in their context, everybody knew that living water meant. The first is, it's best not to drink stagnant water, but rather water that's running, that is living water. Stagnant water is not living water. So you're ever out in, in nature, I've heard there's nature out there. If you're ever out in nature and you need a drink of water, you've run out of water, try to find running water because that's better water. That's living water. But also, secondly, for Jews, and she would have known this because of her proximity, for Jews, living water is actually code speak for the wisdom of God. So a, a, a rabbi might say, let me, let me impart some living water to you. He's saying, let me give you some wisdom of God. The third meaning is that many rabbis... These are Jewish rabbis. They thought of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the only books that the Samaritans believed were true scripture. They thought of the Torah as living water as well. They believed in, in the other 34 books as well, unlike the Samaritans, but they did hold a special place for Torah. They said Torah is where we find living water, the law. And then number four, living water can also mean eternal life, and that's how Jesus uses it here. So there's flowing water, wisdom, Torah, and eternal life. But she's a little confused, verses 11 and 12. And so he, she, here's what she does. She tries to goad him into a religious argument, an ethnic argument, whatever the argument is, about who's greater, Jacob or Abraham. She brings up Jacob just to kind of poke Jesus in the eye because she knows that Jesus thinks of Abraham as uh, the father of their people. So here's what she's doing. She's using spurious religious debates to avoid truth. She, she wants to delve into philosophy and ideology and rules and religion in order to avoid the truth that's right in front of her. Flashing. Truth. 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 But Jesus keeps at her. He tells her in verses 14 and 15 that he has the water that never ends. It's eternal life and that he is the water that never ends. But she continues to think temporally and practically, exactly like I would about summer running in Phoenix. And she says, so you mean I don't have to come out here anymore in the middle of the day when it's hot and carry this water all the way back into the city? I don't have to do that anymore? Great, I'm in. Show me where this, this never-ending living water is. So cut her some slack. This makes sense. Now Jesus goes for it. The next 11 verses, 16 through 26. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that I have no husband because you've had five husbands and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Can you imagine being the woman on the receiving end of this? Verses 19 and 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. little misdirection there. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here and is now here when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who, who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, Well, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is a little bit awkward. In their context, in their language, this was a very awkward exchange. And what's happening here is something that a few weeks ago, when Trey and I did that uh, message on the end of chapter, uh, Gospel of John chapter 2, we talked about verses 23 through 25 where it says that Jesus knows what's in us. He knows what's in our hearts. So he knows what's in this woman. He knows what's in her heart. He knows that she's desperately broken, but she wants redemption. She just has no idea how to get there. She doesn't know how to articulate it. She keeps going to religion and ideology and ethnicity and superiority. And, and he knows that it's there. She just doesn't know how to articulate it. And when she responds in verses 19 and 20, which you can put up on the screen if you want to read them again, the, the feeling there is that she's embarrassed and a bit humiliated by the fact that Jesus says, well, I know all about all the men in your life. How did he know? He knows what's in our hearts. And so I think she's really stiff when she says this. I think she's, she kind of straightens up, pulls back a little bit, says something that sounds religiously good and challenging, and is ready to bounce. That's it. But it's also a bit of a dig. It is. As I mentioned, sometime around 122 B.C., 150 years earlier, the Jewish high priest and leader, John Hyrcanus, led a military campaign into Samaria. They went up on Mount Gerizim, which is what's being referenced here, and they destroyed the, the Samaritan's place of worship. And the Samaritans never rebuilt that temple, and, and no Samaritan was allowed to go down to Jerusalem to worship, so they had no temple to worship in, and yet they continued, the Samaritans would continue for 150 years to go up on the mountain, the Mount Gerizim, to worship there without a temple. So pretty perseverant. And now what we have to see is that she's responding to the awkwardness with some attempted misdirection. She wants to talk about this mountain and the Jerusalem temple. What she's doing is she's trying to distract Jesus with geography and religion. But this is where Jesus completely turns the conversation. She's concerned about where to worship. And Jesus is saying, no, what is of true importance is who to worship and how to worship. He says the mountain's not important, and Jacob really isn't all that. What is important, and by the way, he says Jerusalem's not that important either. What is important, he says, is the one true God and his truth, your passion for him, and the fact that I am here to reconcile you to him. I, I can't ever read this story and not think of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me just read it to you. Paul, at this point in Romans, has laid out nothing but gospel doctrine. And now he turns in the letter to say, because all of this is true, this is what your life should now look like. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, because all of what I've just written is true, by the mercies of God, you are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You are going to worship in spirit and truth. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing your faith, the gospel, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Jesus tells this woman now, he says, I am the water. I'm the water. I'm the wisdom. I'm the light, I'm the life, I'm the manna. I'm the restoration, I'm the redemption. I'm the good shepherd. And don't miss the fact that this is the same truth for us today. Don't miss who Jesus is. And quit the silly misdirection. And just come to Jesus. When Jesus says to worship in spirit truth, he's calling us to worship in joy and confidence in joy and in confidence, because we can. And the fact that she uses the term Messiah, isn't that interesting? That means she's getting it. She's getting it. Remember, the Samaritans were waiting for a prophet like M Moses, 
But she specifically uses the term Messiah, which means she's getting it, and we're sure of that because of what happens next. Look at verses 27 through 30. Just then his disciples came back. Jesus' disciples came back. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? They marveled at him. They were stunned, astonished that he was talking to a woman. And they wanted to say, what in the wide world of sports are you doing talking to that woman? But again, Jesus knows their hearts. So the woman left her water jar and they went away into the town and said to the people, and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She uses that term again. They went out into the town and they were coming to him. So the theme of these verses could be the fact that not everyone is a spiritual meat disciple. Here's what I mean by that. And that we need to be patient. Uh, again, I remember the early years after I came to Christ, I was a milk-drinking disciple. You really had to kind of spoon-feed this stuff to me. You had to, you, had to, you had to give me the right books to read. I couldn't read heavy theology. I needed to read more popular theology to kind of di start to dive in. Um, I don't, don't say, hey, he's a new Christian. Start with Leviticus. That will be good, okay? You don't do that, okay? I would even argue don't even start with John. I mean, you read that first paragraph of John, and, and you've you got a migraine if you don't know what's going on there. You've got to be careful. These guys were brand new to Jesus. They were still drinking milk. And what Jesus was doing with this Samaritan woman was more like meat-eating discipleship, meat-eating evangelism. They weren't quite there yet, but they were going to get a beautiful lesson in it right then and there. I remember when I was new to this, I, I, my first flinch, even though I was saved by grace, my first flinch was to go right into legalism. And that's a lot of people's first flinch. Even though they're saved by grace, we go right into legalism. It takes a while for us to understand, oh, saved by grace, therefore a purveyor of grace. No, it feels better to be saved by grace and then a purveyor of rules and legalism, but that's not what he wants. And that's what these guys are doing. They'd live their whole lives by rules and legalism. This grace thing was brand new to them. But then she goes into town. She confesses and testifies, and the townspeople saw the fruit. And again, you, you need to understand the context. In their context, a woman couldn't even testify in court because she's so unreliable. Women were unreliable. She goes into town and says, you got to come see this guy who knew everything that I did. And not only women, but men believed and came out. This is stunning what is happening here. God uses her testimony for his glory as women and men listened to her and were saved. And we get more detail on that in, in the last few verses. But for now, in verses 31 through 38, we have a very patient and helpful interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one, can you imagine what they're thinking now? We walked all the way into town to get him food. And, okay. So the disciples said to one another, has, he brought, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What is all that about? Well, verse 32, let me ask this. Uh, some of you, anybody have siblings? Anybody got siblings? You grew up with, you know, brothers and sisters or one? Okay. So I, I have four siblings. I'm one of five kids. I'm the last of the five, which I know for some of you that explains so much. I get all of that. But um, with your siblings, um, you ever find out with your siblings that, that they had food that you did not know about? Right? Like donuts or candy bars, and they're hiding them from you. So my mom had a sweet tooth, and she loved C's candies. So she'd go to the C's candy store, and she'd buy a box of C's candy. And then she would come home, and the last thing she wanted to do was pull out a couple of pieces of C's candy and eat them in front of her kids because that's the end of the box, right? 
So what she would do is she'd bring the candy home and she'd hide it. Well, we're, we're smart, we're kids, and we want candy. So we'd find all of her hiding places, you know. She had food that we didn't know about for a while, and then we'd find her hiding places. But then there was always that time when one of the kids would find one of her new hiding places, and of course they wouldn't tell us, would you? So then we had to, you know, I mean, it was, it, but we got our candy. That was what was really important. So, but here, here, here they are. They're, they're like, okay, Jesus, we went into town, into a Samaritan town, and we bought Samaritan food, double whammy. What is going, and you have food? What is wrong with you? We gave up everything, the fishing business and everything to come up here with you. What are you doing to us? Got to remember, this is still really early in this team's ministry and community. So this was throwing the disciples for a loop, the woman, the food thing. Of course, Jesus is talking about a very different food. In Matthew, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here, in verse 34, Jesus says his food is to do the will of the Father. That's his food. Jesus says, listen to this, serving and sacrificing for others is food. Serving and sacrificing for others is food. And we need to understand, Jesus is not advocating for a neglect of physical food, but he is saying that it doesn't have quite the value or importance that some of us, including yours truly, place on it. Feeding our soul is important or more important than it is to feed our stomachs. But then verses 35 through 38, what's all that harvest talk about? What is all, he, it's like he changes gears and he starts talking about four months and the harvest and the white and all of that. Here's what he's saying. He's saying these people are ready for good news right now. There's no need to wait around. There's no need to wait for the right time. They're ready right now. I hear people say all the time, in fact, I've said these things myself, okay? I'm not ready to get married. Guess what? You never will be. You won't. You're going to find out things after you get married that you had no way of knowing in advance about. You just didn't. Okay? Congratulations. I've heard people say, uh, we're not ready yet to have children. You never will be. Children are the ultimate game changer, let me tell you. Okay? People say all the time, I'm not, I'm not, I want to open a business. I have an idea for a business, but I'm really not ready. You're never going to be ready. You're going to encounter challenges and, and by the way, I'm not advocating you go out and open a business right now. I'm just saying that if the only thing that's holding you up is this sort of sense of not being ready, but you've done your due diligence, what's the worst that can happen? Well, I'll fail. Yeah, but you might learn something, and then the next time, it might be good. People say all the time, I'm not ready to share my faith. Yes, you are. The most important thing you need to be able to share your faith is to trust Jesus. That's it. If you know Jesus, you can share your faith. There is a litany of things that if people waited until they were ready to do it, they would never do. And when this woman at the well event took place, the crops had just been sown. That's what's going on here. And so everyone was waiting around for the harvest time, which was four months away. So Jesus uses that as a metaphor to tell his disciples, look around the wheat is already ready. I know it was just planted, but it's already ready. The people need the good news now. They don't need it in four months. Let's start to harvest this field of souls right now. And look what happens in 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. They believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So, look at this now. Two days, Jesus, and uh, all right, I'll stay in Samaria for two more days. Two more days eating Samaritan food. Two days sleeping in Samaritan homes. He's breaking down all of these barriers to life. And we see that the woman's experience and testimony had a profound and immediate effect on some, but also her, testimonies, her testimony led others to start looking harder, but then they eventually believed, and that's a great lesson for us. You and I might plant a seed but not see the growth, but by faith know that the growth will be there because the gospel is a movement of the Holy Spirit and not based on our intelligence and wisdom. There were people who planted seeds with me 
And I didn't understand those seeds until God saved me when I was 27 years old at North Phoenix Baptist Church. And it was primarily because of the witness of Jackie, my wife. But I look back now on all the other seeds that were planted, and maybe that was sort of tilling my heart to get me ready to hear the message. And the best part is occasionally I'll run into one of those persons who had planted the seed, one of their seeds, and they'll find out that not only am I a Christian, but I'm a pastor. And they're just, they're overjoyed that they know that they were a part of that. The person who found this property for us, his father-in-law was somebody who planted that seed in my heart 35 years ago in Chicago, Illinois. It's strange how things work together. It's amazing. So I want to ask a couple of questions as we end. Here's the first one. What is it that you thirst for? My guess is that you're thirsting for wisdom. You're thirsting for truth. You're thirsting for eternal life, although you may not be able to articulate it. Certainly, you're thirsting for restoration of everything in your life that's broken. Jesus is where you find the quenching of your thirst. Here's the second question, and I know we only got about 45 seconds left, but I want you to really focus on this question. This is a critical question. Here's the question. Is the woman at the well a promiscuous sinner, or, she, or is she an abused and oppressed victim? Is she a sinner, or is she a victim? The answer is, is that she's both, and Jesus comes to her for both. How about you and me? We, you and I, we're both sinful, for sure, and we've been victimized in some way by someone at some point, right? To live in a sinful world means that we will be on the receiving end at some point, and we all have been. But for sure, we've dished it out as well. And the point is, is that we are the woman at the well, and Jesus is the answer. He both exposes us for who we are, like he did with the woman, and then he lavishes us with grace. He lavishes us with grace. Verse 42 says he's the savior of the world. What that means is that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And he even says it that way in John chapter 14, which we will get to in 2026, I guarantee you. Isn't it time that we embrace the Savior of the world? Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful again for how you construct your word, the narratives, the stories, the history, the context, the words. And how you bring, you spend 42 verses on this woman and her testimony and her salvation and her experience. That should tell us something. So God, thank you for that. Thank you for letting us in on the inside with the woman at the well who is really us also. So God, I pray that we would have the courage to respond as she did. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us your power and strength. Equip us for all that you need us to do. And God, give us hope, give us courage, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to sing one more song together, and we're going to come to the Lord's table and take communion, and if you don't have your communion kit, they are out in the lobby, and you are welcome to get up right now and head out there and grab your uh, communion kit to do that. Uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's with his disciples, and he changes the Passover meal, and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the no covenant. Pour it out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He gives us a new covenant and he calls us to this table to confess our sin, to, a, to proclaim that we're aligned with Jesus and to celebrate his death and proclaim his death until he comes again. And so we're gonna do that now. If you're watching on the live stream, I pray that you'd have your elements ready. If not, go get your elements ready. We're going to spend about five minutes singing and, and doing this together. Uh, one other thing. Um, we haven't had people in the, in the wings to pray in a long, long time since COVID started. Uh, we've decided to start doing that again. But we're going to do it with some protocols. We, we know that people probably need prayer now more than they have before COVID started. <laughs> honestly, and we'd like to be able to pray with you. And so if you'd like to come up and pray with us, you can. Just wear your mask. We'll have on our masks as well. 
Um, and, and if you want to wait until after the service to come and pray, that's fine too. We'll be up here as well. So let's do all of that now.
All right. Thank you very much for being with us and worshiping with us this morning. I'm going to do uh, the numbers blessing and prayer over us, but I'm going to change one word. And now, may the King bless you and keep you. May the King make his eyes to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. And may the King lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. God bless you all. Have a great week. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. And if you don't believe in miracles, you didn't watch the end of game four last night. We'll see you next week.